Molweni, Tobela, Makadini, Namgelegi Le Emtunzini, Black Christians Thinking Out Loud. This is a podcast about the gospel and the people of the gospel in the townships, rural areas, and inner cities of Southern Africa. My name is Godfrey Ogapenduga from Emtunzini, and today I want to introduce part one of a guest podcast generously given to us by the church in Mamelodi. And the participants in this episode are Spoom Lojo, the pastor of the church in Mamelodi, Pume Zomasango, the pastor of Christ Church Kaelicha, and a lecturer at George Whitwood College, and Musandinga, the pastor of Christ Central Soweto. And they will be talking to us today about the history of the township church. Enjoy. Pumezo, um, if maybe, firstly, just to ask you, uh, tell us about um, give us a flavor of Ikaelicha, what it's like for those who've never been there. Um, yeah, culturally, spiritually, geographically, socially, just let us know about Ikaelicha, where you come from, um, and the place where you serve. Thank you, Mpondisi. And uh, good evening to my brothers and sisters who are part of this uh, conference. Um, and thank you for the opportunity to come and be part of this conversation uh, about the Lord's work in our Black Townships. Uh, my name, as Umfundis has said, is Pume Zomasango. Originally, I come from the Eastern Cape. Um, I was born in a rural village. Uh, I grew up there. And uh, yes, I was, I was, my father was a pastor from the branch of Christianity in South Africa that we, we sometimes called African independent churches. Um, so I grew up there until uh, in my teenage years, we moved into a township and um, I, by God's grace, uh, got to know the Lord Jesus personally. I experienced new birth. I was saved and after completing high school, um, I moved to Cape Town, to Kailicha in particular, and I've been uh, in Kailicha for over 20 years now, uh, perhaps 24 years. Um, Kailicha is uh, mostly, mostly like many other townships in South Africa. It is ever growing. If you, if you are away for a year or two, you come back and you can't recognize it. Um, uh, currently, there are new sections that are developing as people are utilizing the spaces and putting on their shacks. Um, it's, a, it's a township that uh, has crime as well, like many other townships. Um, it's a place um, that was designed for exclusion. It's 34 kilometers away from the city center, Cape Town city center. Uh, but it's also a place of beauty. Uh, there's beauty in culture, in Kailicha. There's Ubuntu, there's warmness, and it's vibrant like most uh, townships. So it is one of the largest townships in South Africa. It's vibrant. Uh, so um, uh, many people, the large number of people, perhaps over 95% of people are closer speakers in, in Kailicha. Most of them originate from 
from the Eastern Cape. It's not an old township. Um, it was started in 1985 during the state of emergency. Uh, for those who are not Bentens, uh, will remember. <laughs> Uh, well, remember how P.W. Porter instituted this um, state of emergency in South Africa and people were forcibly removed from other parts of, of Cape Town, like uh, New Cross Road Township, Bukuletu Township, and they found their home in Kailicha, uh, hence the name Kailicha, which means new home. So it was a new home for, for them, and it has been there since. Sure. Um, amazing, amazing. Um, yeah, that's awesome, awesome. So, so now, one of the things that um, obviously, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, Pumezo, but it seems to be a consistent thing in terms of uh, South Africa. Everywhere you go, townships are, are predominantly made up of black people that stay there. And uh, many black people work in, in the so-called suburbs. And when they take a taxi, when they take a train to go there, that existence is, is pretty much different, totally different from, from where they come from. Um, I would want to believe that was not uh, natural. That was not uh, by coincidence. Um, can you maybe give us a history as to, um, as to why that is? Um, yeah, how did we get these places that are now called townships where predominantly black people are there? What happened? Yes, you are right. It was by design. Um, townships were designed to be places of exclusion, places uh, of marginalization, where black people would be brought in into the so-called Republic of South Africa. Uh, which which was started, uh, the modern South Africa was started in 1910. I mean, not that the country didn't exist before, um, but what we know as the Republic of South Africa uh, was what was called in 1910, the, the Union of South Africa, where um, uh, the African people and the British people who were in power at that time uh, concluded their war um, the Anglo-Boer War, and decided to work together for what they called the Union of South Africa, except that this union ex uh, excluded the majority peoples of this land. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when people, um, the, the Republic, the places like Cape Town and jo Johannesburg and other areas were considered to be South Africa and, and black people were considered to be belonging to a little independent states that were later known as the Bandustans. And when, when, they, when they came um, in, they needed to know that they don't belong here. They came only for reasons of working as the need for cheap labor was, was rising in South Africa. And so uh, the government of the day designed these areas, which we now call uh, townships, in order to place these migrant workers from different parts of rural South Africa and also Southern Africa. So these, uh, our people were placed in these areas. Uh, it was never meant to be home uh, permanently for them. 
it was a, a temporal space so that they could be utilized as cheap labor, uh, particularly in around the mines in Kimberley and in Vedvater's Rand. Uh, so, so already you can see there that um, uh, uh, making these place homes where people can dwell permanently was never an idea of, of the government of the day. That is why still today that legacy still exists where we live in the townships uh, outside usually of the economic hubs of our cities or our provinces. Uh, that still persists today, uh, but it speaks to the um, resistance uh, of our people that they have turned around their lives and made something beautiful of their lives, even in spaces that were meant to exclude and marginalize them. Um, would you say um, how much, in what, ex to what extent, did apartheid play a role in in that in the in those in those spaces um, where people who were laborers were wanted to be? Is interesting the way you you describe it. It's, it was. It was it was a storage place, if I can say, for those who are, who, are, who wanted to be to be labor, so that they can be housed, so that they can be able to work. To what extent did apartheid play or the system play a role in that? I would have to go back a little bit in front of this. Um, so apartheid was instituted in 1948, but we would have to go back a little further, perhaps to the 1800s, the late 1800s in particular the uh, 1860s when uh, in Kimberley uh, a diamond was discovered and four or five years later gold was discovered in Vedvater's Rand. Um, as a result of that, they increased the need of cheap labor um, according to what uh, the Africana and the, and the British people thought. And as a result, there were what was called it was what was called the single compounds, single sex compounds, as Ngombol, where men from different parts of Southern Africa were brought to live together in small spaces in order to be available uh, to work in the mines. Uh, and that went on uh, coming into apartheid. So, so the compounds uh, uh, precede the, the, the townships. Um, so as the need increased, more and more people came into the cities to find work, and uh, the apartheid government regulated um, uh, what already existed before it. It made rules now for those people living in the townships. It sought to regulate their movement. Uh, that's why people had to carry uh, what was called the Dompas back in the day. Uh, because uh, they they needed to know uh, from the white people's perspective that uh, South Africa is not their country. Uh, they are sojourners in this country. They belong um, to their so-called countries, your Venda, Transkai, Siskai, Boputatswane, and, and other areas on the outskirts of, of our country. So it, date, it dates back uh, way before the apartheid itself. But the apartheid regime, beginning from 1948, uh, sought to aggressively implement uh, the policy of segregation and to regulate people even 
in the squatter camps where they lived. Mm. Mm. Uh, can you speak to the importance then politically of, um, as that was done, of some of the more known kind of townships in terms of also where to, uh, I believe in Kaili, Chas, Sibukeng and all of this, what is their significance in terms of the narrative um, of South Africa? Yes, yeah, even before we get there, I think of um, the implications um, in the family or of the ravaging of the family structures due to the fact that the husband is away for 10, 11 months uh, working in Kimberley or in Vedvatar's Rand. Um, think of the indignities they suffered uh, in those areas as they were not treated as full human beings. And that had huge uh, ramifications uh, in the lives of our people. And we still face those to this day. I don't think we have completely overcome that. But the, uh, to come back to your, to your question, the political significance of these townships is on the one hand, they are a reminder of where we come from as a people, a reminder of how uh, the governments of the day sought to divide our people according to racial lines, where they sought to put black people uh, in spaces that were not meant to be occupied by human beings. Um, so the existence of townships uh, speaks to the competence of those uh, who put these structures together so that decades after they have gone, we still have uh, townships exclusively for black people and uh, white people mostly live uh, in the suburbs. But on the other hand, um, the development you see in the township, the beauty that is there uh, speaks to what I, I spoke about earlier on, um, the, the resistance of our people the tenacity of our people to be able to make something of their lives, even in the midst of, of those spaces that we now call a township today. Indeed, it's God's grace upon the lives of our black people that uh, they have managed um, uh, to be tenacious, um, to do something good, um, to develop themselves, uh, the places they lived in, uh, and even some of them managing to leave those places and move to other areas of the country. Uh, we can only thank God um, for that tenacity of our people. There's a question here, Mfundisi, just related in terms of the, the, the implication and the legacy of that system. It says here, to what extent is the migrant labor system contributing to the destruction of black family life? kind of like speaking into that systematic kind of a thing. To what extent does it contribute to the destruction of black family life? Yeah, I would, I, I would think that uh, there still live today people who will know um, uh, from experience the story we're talking about of how they grew up without their fathers because they were working far away and how that brought pain um, to the women and children left at home, and how the fathers themselves uh, battled uh, with, with challenges 
living in an area that is not your home, where your family is not here, where temptations are all around. Uh, many of us have uncles or parents who have experienced that. And I don't know how much um, we have done in terms of addressing even the psychological impact uh, because, because apartheid did not just affect people uh, physically, but it also affected people uh, even, even emotionally, even psychologically. Um, I remember Mfunsumusa asking in one other platform that why are we, are we a violent nation? Why are we angry? Um, this expresses itself uh, in many different ways. Uh, I don't know, uh, but perhaps you could say that uh, we are people who are scared um, because of what the governments have done before to black people. We are scared emotionally, we are scared psychologically, we are scared uh, spiritually as a nation. And therefore these are the things that we need to continue to have conversations about uh, so that we can say that we need to move forward in a way that um, we will break away from victimhood, that we will continue um, to develop ourselves as people uh, and not to be prisoners of the atrocities committed to us uh, for decades, uh, uh, many decades ago. Mm. Just to say as well, um, if the specific question that you have regarding, um, you know, this aspect, we're still on the historical side of apartheid, you can add, but as you are typing, if Musa, I know you've spoken about this, just maybe the practical aspects of what he's talking about, that destruction of family life, as you see it, maybe in Soweto, um, how does it take root, maybe, um, if, if you don't mind? It's, um, this is an issue that's very close to my heart because of how destructive it's been. If you look at AMA statistics as a South Africa, when they talk about the family, they say it is only one in three children uh, in South Africa actually grow up knowing both their parents. Um, only one in three. And if you take that, that statistic and you break it up according to the different racial demographics in our country, you will see that, that, that the people who are disproportionately affected by this are Black people specifically black people who live in the township. So the apartheid government gave, the, uh, the, gave black men in particular an impossible choice to make. Uh, mm. In order for them to, to, to drive people to, 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 to areas where they can work and become cheap labor, they basically forced them, they basically pushed them out of the town, out of the rural areas, many of them, uh, through certain laws that, they, that the government enacted at that time. And so men had to choose between, basically had to choose between being poor and, and letting their families starve to death or being separated from their families. And many men, uh, as we know, chose, chose to, to, to support their families by moving away. And over decades and decades of this, this thing repeating itself, it created a chasm in our societies where oh mama, mm -hmm. and then oh baba, or living in a township. Many of the men started new families in the township. And so there was a division now 
where some parents, where some kids don't even know who they, their fathers are because Ubaba actually has another family in another part of the world. And so when he has a child here, he neglects that child. And so that decades of centuries and decades of that happening has basically broken down the social structure uh, of our of, of, of the township. Uh, where most where most if you can even check with people who are here, I would not be surprised if most people who are listening in now do not know who their fathers were or, were, or their fathers were not involved in their lives. And, and this is one of the evils that we have seen in apartheid. Um, the fact that this has had to be the case specifically in South Africa. Sure. Uh, and so, and so uh, as I hear you, as I hear you also, Musen um, Pumezo, uh, Pumezo, you're saying there is, there's an extent in, into which what we see now in, in, in the townships is as a result of the history of what happened um, in apartheid. But as I hear you as well, I heard you say something about talking about victimhood, you know, uh, in, in that as much as that has happened, you know, we should try and develop ourselves. Can you just maybe give, just speak on that tension of, okay, it has happened, it's here, but at the same time, we, we have to appreciate it, but we can't stay there. Um, just speak on that. Yes, um, it, it's, it's true that um, these are, are the things that have been done to us as a people, uh, but what we need to, to remember, and uh, parts of our society has, has made strides in this, we need to remember that uh, we now have a responsibility uh, given the grace by the Lord to be able to find ways in which we can heal and, 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 and move forward. Um, it's not going to be easy uh, but we've seen stories uh, from almost all different townships, stories of people who came uh, from such a structure that is broken, but they have been able to utilize the little opportunities that have come their way, and they have made uh, something of their lives. So this is where, as the church, we also need to be involved. Uh, we need to see how the gospel implications are applied to people in such a way that they can do and uh, good works uh, around their societies, uh, within their churches, within their families, uh, so that uh, we, we rebuild uh, ourselves as a people. I would think that these are the sort of things that we would cover, for instance, in our, uh, for instance, men's ministry, youth ministry, uh, because we are people living in a particular context. And so we need to work out what it means to be a witness of Christ, having come from such a background. And we need to be assisting others in doing that. Uh, so it's an ongoing work uh, for, for all of us to be the light and the salt of the world in the corners where the, uh, the Lord has placed us. Um, so that as the church, we are mediators of God's love and peace. Uh, we reconcile people who are involved in the, in the process of, of healing even in societies where the Lord has placed us. So, so you spoke about the gospel. Let's, <clears throat> let's, let's jump into that because um, the political history is not just where it ends. As, as you, as we drive around the township, even 
today, you see a lot of these old buildings um, that are written so-and-so reform church, uh, so-and-so missionary church. Um, and that tells you that even during that dark time, there was a work, there was something that was happening. Uh, missionary seems, seems like, I don't know, if they, were, they were planting churches uh, there. Uh, and, so, and so tell us, uh, tell us a, bit, a bit, can you take us on a journey of how, 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 how were some of these uh, you know, churches planted and, and what was the gospel work that was, that was happening uh, during that time? So I would say, Fundis, I don't think there was a time in our townships where the Christian faith was not represented, um, either by individuals or by churches from the inception of the, of the different townships that we have in our country. Um, but just uh, for the purposes of our discussions here, I would like to break down uh, perhaps four strands uh, of Christianity that have had a huge impact in our townships, um, dating back um, over over a hundred years ago. I'll begin with uh, with a strand that has been called Ethiopian movement. Uh, Ethiopian movement is um, a group of ministers, particularly from the 1880s, early 1880s. Uh, who resigned from, from, from what we can call mission-instituted churches. Uh, these black ministers from the Methodist Church, from the Presbyterian Church, from the Congregational and, 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 and Baptist Church, these ministers left these churches in the 1880s because they felt that um, they were oppressed by missionaries who headed these churches that they were not given um, a responsibility as leaders, that they were not acknowledged as full participants in the body of Christ. So, so they left to start uh, the Ethiopian church or Presbyterian church in Africa or, or, or Dutch reformed church. Uh, they left the, their existing uh, churches that were planted by missionaries to start churches that were led by Africans themselves. They followed um, the churches that he left in terms of their theology, which was largely reformed, and in terms of the liturgy. Only the name and the leadership that changed, um, but the theology was followed. Uh, now this is, so, so for instance, our national anthem was first sung uh, by a church choir in 1998, uh, in 1898, uh, a church choir from the uh, African Presbyterian Church. Uh, the song was composed, as we know, by Enoch Sondonga, but he composed it as a, as a, as a youth choir conductor at that time. Moving in the early 20th century, uh, we saw the mushrooming um, of another strand of Christianity in South Africa, uh, of another branch, uh, which we may call the Zionist type of churches. Uh, these were the 1920s uh, in KZN, in what was called back then also the Transvaal. Uh, this was a unique type of, of, of branch of Christianity, uh, which sought to, to acknowledge and to have a huge role for the African culture uh, which they felt that it was oppressed 
in the churches that were, that were planted uh, by the missionaries. And then moving to the 1940s in particular, uh, there came a, a wave of a branch of churches um, that were started by black leaders who were mostly Pentecostal. And I can speak here of Nicholas Pengu, who was a dominant figure, really beginning in the township of New Brighton uh, on the 23rd of January, 1945. Uh, and he ministered uh, for in different parts of the country, but mainly uh, beginning uh, in, in PE and then moving to East London before moving to the rest of the country uh, and dying after four decades of impactful ministry, uh, dying in Krotesky in, um, in 1985. So he, he had four decades um, of faithful ministry. And then fourthly, there is a, a strand that developed in the late 80s, early 90s, as we're being ushered in into the, the new South Africa, the so-called new South Africa, which was a strand of, the, of what we may call the newer charismatic churches, mostly independent, mostly led by, by young, uh, gifted uh, black men uh, who, who impacted uh, their areas. And they were, they were people with new found vigor and they really uh, kept um, the, the, the fire going uh, in, the, in the townships. And as we know, fitly, if I may add, there uh, is a renewed interest in the, in particularly the reformed tradition uh, and what it, it might look like in the township. Uh, and I consider that uh, some of us here uh, are belonging to that in the sense that we are seeking to see how to be reformed in the township. What does it, what does it look like uh, really? Um, these are the type of pastors um, that acknowledged uh, what, uh, what has been achieved before, but that are seeking um, to find new ways of applying um, the, the word of God in the context of South Africa. And people are wondering, who are these people? Where do they come from? Uh, as you have said earlier on, Mfundis, they are saying, we've never heard before. Well, what, what are you? You know, you have names of the churches uh, sometimes that sound like old reformed churches, which we cannot identify with anymore. But we listen to your preaching and we think, oh my goodness, um, you sound like the newer charismatic churches sometimes. Who are you? And I think this group is also struggling to find its identity. Uh, in this new South Africa. Mm. Um, sorry for this. If you can maybe just clarify a bit. So you were you were speaking of the Ethiopian, then the Zionist churches, uh, and the Pentecostal churches of the mid 20th century, um, the likes of uh, we've mentioned Nicholas Pengu, and I spoke fourthly about the newer charismatic churches of the late 80s, early 90s. And then fifthly, I spoke about uh, the, the, the reformed uh, guys who are, already, who are now in our townships and who are seeking to think through uh, how do they express 
uh, their branch of Christianity in the townships. Okay, there's a question here from Donald. I know some of the Dutch Reformed churches had almost a denomination within their denomination specifically for African people. Was this widespread in other denomination? Was there many such churches in the township? Yes, it Talk was. About Dutch, Dutch Reformed. Yeah, yeah many churches were, were separated according to uh, racial lines uh, in different parts of the country. He's right about the Dutch Reformed Church. We even Pentecostal churches such as um, um, Assemblies of God, uh, some churches still to this day, there is one branch of the denomination for black Africans and one branch for colored people and the other branch for, uh, for white people and other denominations as well. So the separation that took place in South Africa um, was felt even by the churches. They were not immune uh, to the separation that took place. Even those churches that did not formally um, divide themselves into, uh, uh, according to racial lines, uh, even though in their books they were one church, but practically because of laws such as Group Areas Act uh, of 1949-1950, it meant that practically they were divided. Uh, practically black people went to black churches in the townships and in the rural areas and white people went to the churches in the suburban areas. So all life was characterized by separateness in South Africa, particularly during the time of apartheid. And, and so you spoke about Nicholas Bengu, uh, especially as representative from the Pentecostal uh, side. Can you reflect on just the issue of um, maybe firstly, you know, which which other people, which other heroes do we have that, you know, that people that have, have carried the torch of the gospel before, but also reflect on the kind of, um, should I say Christianity, should I say understanding of, of the gospel that they had, is it different? Was it different from what we have? or are we, are we kind of like doing a new thing or are we just picking up or have we lost what they had um, and now we have to regain it or are we, have, have they never, have, did they preach the gospel differently than maybe um, we understand? If you can just reflect on that. Uh, Musa as well, you can jump in, yeah. Yeah, thanks Mfondis. So I would say um, without at this stage naming uh, individuals, I would say across the country, um, and this is a group that I, I think has been underrated, its role and impact has been underrated. I can think of what we may call Mother's Union, Umanyan. This is a, a group of people across denominational lines uh, who managed to hold the fort during the difficult days of our country. When men went to the mines, uh, they were left behind um, uh, carrying the torch of the gospel in rural areas. Even when the, the, the revivals that we witnessed um, in the mid of the 20th century, the likes of Duma, the likes of Ngidi, um, the likes of Butelezi, uh, the likes of Nicholas Pengu, even during this time, you will see how reliant they were to the mother's unions 
in terms of financial support, uh, in terms of, 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 of prayers. Um, uh, when, when men were away and when, when men were reluctant uh, to be part of the Christian community, uh, these women belonging to these mothers' unions uh, played a significant role. They nurtured children, um, they sustained uh, the, 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 the church in the townships. So I would like to highlight a mother's union from different denominations really as having an impact that has, I feel, not uh, well studied and not well recorded in the annals of the South African history. A lot of work needs to be done to unearth really the, the achievements uh, that uh, our mothers uh, have gained uh, so that the church in the township kept thriving and in the, in the rural areas. And I have mentioned the individuals uh, that came in in the, in the 1940s, 1950s, the likes of Obab uh, Mashitila. These were men who preached, who emphasized the doctrine of the new birth. They emphasized the need um, to come to faith in Jesus Christ and to be born again, uh, something that even though it existed uh, in the prayer books of the mainline churches, but was not known, it was hidden to the members of the mainline churches during this time. So they called, they, they preached not to establish churches, not to start denomination, but they preached to renew the church. They insisted on people not to leave their churches, but to, to bring renewal, to bring rejuvenation within the churches they belong to. But the work grew more than they could think. And as a result, especially Nicholas Bengu, the apartheid government kept harassing him, saying, we see that you are attracting huge numbers and we don't see any organization you belong to. You are a threat uh, to this government. You need to be registered with an organization so that we can identify you. That's why he had to look around and, and see which denomination uh, is close to what he believes in. He himself was not coming from the Assemblies of God. He picked Assemblies of God, for instance, to be an umbrella body under which he is going to continue uh, his autonomous ministry, uh, which was called Back to God at that time even today, back to God movement. So these were men who emphasized mostly um, the new birth, and they also, in particular, uh, Nicholas Pengu, uh, he was a leader with moral conviction. He preached holiness, he emphasized holiness, and then he models for many of us, even today, how an African ministry can sustain itself even during difficult times and be self-supporting and be, uh, and, and be self-led really. That is, I mean, by, led by people from disadvantaged areas, supported by people from disadvantaged areas. Uh, this is the type of, uh, of Christianity that showed confidence um, in African people who were otherwise believed not to be fully humans by the government of the day. And, and this kind of, of a movement transcended really denominational and critical lines of the day.
Yeah, just to chip in what, to what Mfundis is saying, there are a lot of things that us reformed evangelicals, um, when we come into the township and preach the gospel, we take for granted that these things are believed. We don't, there are certain fights that we don't need to fight as hard because of, uh, because of what other churches have done in the past. Um, something as simple as uh, the idea of um, drawing a line between ancestral worship and a Christian uh, standing for, for God and what that looks like. Some of the transformational thinking that people have gone through because as they thought about Chilobola and what it means to be a Christian and stand for that and be a Christian, but at the same time, walk that walk in your culture. Those are things that other, other people before us actually fought and they, and they won those battles in the hearts of people. So that when we go and preach the gospel, people can just immediately identify us and know what we stand for. Some of the family structures that we see uh, were because of the church fighting for the family structure. The Assemblies of God, for example, they were, they were very, they, they are known for being a church that promotes marriage and removing obstacles from people so that people can get married. Something we take for granted now as Christians, uh, but it's something that was fought by, by, for by these churches. So these churches have, have a lot, have contributed a lot in terms of our outlook of the gospel in the township, such that there are certain things we need to fight, but some things we just take for granted. One of the sadness about uh, our history actually is that none, most of it is not documented when we learn about church history in, in places, we don't learn about men like these. We learn about people from outside because, because of what Umba Masang was talking about. They, 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 black people were seen as not being fully human. So their contribution was, has been undermined. And so maybe that's one of the ways in which we can, we can contribute by actually re resurrecting this history and showing it that actually there are men and women who've done amazing things that we can learn from in history. Sure, that's very helpful <clears throat> because there is a, a sense in which, especially uh, pastors today, we may be very easy to put down what has been done in the past. And we may think that we are the only ones that have, uh, that have kind of like come with, um, with, with, with the truth. Um, and so that's, that's helpful to know that there's some guys that came before us, they might not have said it in a way that maybe today, people might, um, might understand, but they were, like you say, they were emphasizing um, 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 born again, and they were emphasizing holiness. Um, and that's, that's how, um, and maybe let me pick your mind a bit on that, um, um, in terms of, um, would you say, what would you say then is, is the need for us? What is the need for us then in, in the township? What, what should we be doing? <clears throat> should, we, should we be picking up from where they left off, or do you want to? Do you think we should add to? There's an there's an aspect of Christianity that maybe they missed, that maybe we should. Um, that now that we know better, a few years later than they, maybe we know we, we can we can pick up on that. Um, and Musa, you can also chime chime in on that. What is the biggest need in terms of as you see in the township today? Yeah. Yes, Mufunis. Um, I, I think uh, as Umfun Musa has said. Um, um, the Christianity in the townships is a neglected heritage. Uh, 
neglected even by us, that is those of us who live and minister in the townships. And I agree with Mfonsumosa that we need uh, to bring this rich history we have uh, because by bringing it up, we are showing humility before God. We are acknowledging that God has wept in our areas by our forebears to achieve great heights indeed. Um, we, are, we are acknowledging the fact that we are not the only ones running this race, but there is a cloud of witnesses uh, that has gone before us and in their own time, in their own way, sought to witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the context they found themselves. So we need to, to build on their achievements. Um, and uh, when I look at the, at the township church today, I see a church that is vibrant, in particular in South Africa. Uh, one brother uh, from overseas once joked that uh, uh, he thinks that in heaven, um, the, the, undes, uh, the, un, um, the role of the intercessors will be played by Nigerians. Uh, he says they pray so much, no nation can beat them in praying. But when he, he thinks of the, um, of, the, of the worship team, the so-called worship team or music team, definitely uh, black South Africans will be in the choir in heaven. Everyone else will have to stand behind. That speaks to the vibrancy, the innovation, um, that is there in the churches, in the townships, um, how uh, people from the townships have owned uh, really the task of, of making disciples in their own areas. But if I were to speak about um, particular weaknesses, uh, I, I would like to highlight two that I've seen um, among the township churches. Number one, I would like to highlight disunity. There is a lack of unity among churches in the townships. Uh, each church wants to do its own thing. Each church seems to be wanting to build its own kingdom. Or, or each tradition, creedal tradition, whether you call them Pentecostals or Charismatics or Reformed people, they want to work only with the, with their own, within their own group. They are suspicious of others. Uh, they are so separated that um, if Paul was to come here today, he wouldn't recognize where we get uh, this separation. It would seem that uh, we, are, we, we are refusing to have Jesus's prayer of the unit of the church answered in our own time. We are so separated, we, we seem to, uh, to have adopted the notion of denominations in, in the way that has become unhelpful. Uh, and I think that's something that is causing us to be ineffective. We are not willing to bring the rich resources we have so that we can be effective uh, in the kingdom work uh, within the townships. The, the second thing I think is our weakness as Christians in the township is, is the issue of what we may call prophetic witness. That is, when it comes to socioeconomic and political issues, we have not known 
how best to go about witnessing for Christ in that context. So those of us who, who so there's a problem of poverty, there's a problem of structures that perpetuate the oppression and the exclusion of black people uh, and, and the symptoms are plenty. Uh, and the way we deal with that seems to be unhelpful to me. So there are those of us who we might call they belong to a type of Christianity that is sometimes called prosperity gospel. It really is a way of saying, well, do you want yourself to be uh, living or to be improved in what, from what you are? Uh, have faith in Jesus, everything will be well. Give your money to the church or to the pastor, um, everything will go according. You will prosper um, uh, materially. And I don't think that's a helpful way. But on, on the other hand, um, there is a group uh, where others belong, where the emphasis is uh, just believe in Jesus and wait for the return of Jesus Christ. Everything will be sorted when Christ comes back. So there is no engaging uh, with the context in which we find ourselves. Uh, one group, uh, especially uh, the newer reformed guys, uh, are learned guys. Most of them have attained theological education. And so they know a great deal about the context of the Bible. They also know a great deal about the context of Western Europe and North America. If you were to take them to those parts of the world, they would succeed, the, the, their ministries would, would explode. But these guys, they have not done much work in terms of understanding the context from which they come. The education they received uh, seemed to have made them be distanced even from their own context so that after three years of having been at a theological college, they still, to, they still have to start from scratch in terms of understanding the context in order to minister effectively. I think it was, um, uh, I can't remember whether it was, uh, it was Lewis who once said that um, uh, if, if, when he was asked, uh, what would you do if you had one hour with an unbeliever and you had to share the gospel with him, how would you go about it? And he said he would spend 45 minutes getting to know that stranger, finding out his background, where they come from, and then spend the last 15 minutes uh, presenting the gospel to him in ways that he will understand. So unfortunately, these two groups, one is caught up into money-making schemes, thinking that if you give your money today to a, to a pastor, you, you will get rich, but the other group is caught up only in the world of the Bible and the world of, of, of the West, that is Western Europe and North America, without immersing themselves into the world of the 21st century South Africa, in particular townships. How do you bring the gospel message to bear in the context in which the black South Africans living in the townships find themselves in? That for me is a huge challenge. We have a treasure, but we need to find ways in which we'll present the gospel 
so that people can understand, so that it, it answers the questions they are faced with. They, we have presented the gospel in a way that doesn't answer the questions people are facing. We are answering the questions that were asked by the 18th, 17th, and 19th century Europe, uh, instead of answering the questions that are faced by our people now. And that is rendering us ineffective in our own time. Um, let me, uh, I'll come to you, Musa, now. Um, there's a question here, and uh, I want to pick up on what you said. Um, about do we focus too much on individual blessings versus heavier issues on biblical justice? And I wonder, Pumezo, is, is that connected? And Musa, Musa, maybe I can start with you and then, and then I'll, come, I'll come back to you. Um, I wonder if it's, it's that connected to the questions that other people have asked, but they've answered it differently with a different kind of a message um, but because we have not asked those questions, we have left it to others. Now we complain when we hear prosperity gospel, individual blessings. And so, and so Musa, could you speak on that? Just the, um, do you think that as the, the township, if I can call it a township chair, are we maybe emphasizing too much on individual blessings more than biblical justice? And, and, and um, do you think that's an issue? Yeah, it is. It goes again to the point that Obama Sango was making um, of how churches have positioned themselves and, and what are they seeing as the questions that people are asking. Uh, so what, what has made the church grow in specific times in history? Uh, in the 19th, in the mid 20th century, even in the 16th century, when we, uh, the, the tradition that a lot of reformed a lot of us reformed evangelicals get our things is because at that specific moment in time, there were questions that the, that the society was asking and, and people were able to answer them in a biblical way. And so that's, and so we need to get to that point where we are, where we wrestle and find out how is it that we can answer some of these questions that society is raising because society increasingly, even though we, uh, Christianity, there's a very rich tradition of Christianity. In the reality of the township is that a lot of Christianity has actually been receding in terms of its relevance to people, especially among young people. It is people are increasingly looking at other ways of answering questions. In fact, that is things that are happening in a township that we never even dreamed would happen. There are people who are uh, who are militantly against Christianity and call it a white man's religion, something that was a bit, was, that is foreign to many of us. Um, and the reason for that is because we have not really engaged with the questions that people are asking and found ways of answering those questions. So that's the challenge that we have as, as, as reformed evangelicals. And maybe that's the opportunity that God is opening for us. Uh, how do we wrestle with these questions? So, so, so Pumezo, you said unity, you said Prophetic witness uh, are the two weaknesses that you will pick up. There's also a question here about, um, we spoke about the racial divide in terms of history. Do you think that maybe the racial uh, uh, divide, let me, let me say it here the way, they, the way that it was asked. Um, do you think that even today, African pastors 
are still oppressed in the reform circles as it was in 1818. What significant role did the apartheid play in dividing the body of Christ? So, so, so we saw how the, the apartheid divided uh, in terms of politically, but I think, would you put that as a third reason, a weakness in terms of the racial divide, in terms of um, the white-black divide, or would you think that's not an issue anymore? Um, it is still an issue, Mfundis. Remember um, uh, that the, the reformed tradition um, is, is complicit um, in the apartheid, actually even in the path of segregation um, in South Africa. Um, Mfundis, yes, sir. I, I think I think we need another another webinar to unpack that, but continue, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we will we'll only touch on it in front of today. So yes, we 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 are we are complicit in that. I mean it it was the the synod of the Dutch Reformed Church in 1857 that the synod made a resolution um, to have worship services. Uh, that are for uh, black people or indigenous peoples here in the Cape and for the and for the settlers, that is the Dutch and the British. Uh, that happened in 1857 already in a reformed church. So we've played a role, uh, those of us who come from the uh, reformed tradition. We need to play a role in rectifying those mistakes today. We need to be able to say, how we've used the Bible in the past, uh, black and white, we've used the Bible in the past incorrectly. We need, um, I remember one person, um, or I remember a book that is titled Reforming the Reformed Tradition. Um, we, we need to be humble and say, uh, we need to repent of how our branch of Christianity or tradition has contributed to the division that is in the society today, how do we rectify that? How do we work towards unity that is tangible and, and visible? I mean, the book of Revelation speaks about people from every tribe, language, uh, culture, and nation singing together, salvation belongs to the Lord. And, and that is the beautiful picture we are looking forward to. But why can't we work uh, towards a foretaste of that picture today? Why should we be comfortable um, if the, uh, the, the government of the apartheid has, has excelled in dividing us? Why are we satisfied with that? Why don't we work hard, even though it's going to be messy, but work hard at building, uh, at, at, at taking down the walls that divide us and making sure that we cease to be a white church and a black church, but we become a South African church. That, that is very hard and that is very uh, um, uh, challenging to do, but it's something that you must keep thinking about all the time. A generation before us thought, look, we are sick and tired of white people. They can have their services. We are going to have our own services. But I think we need to be people that continue to engage with this question. Should the church in South Africa remain divided 
or should the church, as I said to you earlier on that, churches are divided even within denomination. You, you have uh, in one denomination, a group that's organized according to black Africans, according to white people, and according to uh, colored or Indian people. Uh, are we satisfied with that? Uh, what if Jesus Christ um, spent a lot of time praying for the unity of the church, if you read John 17, why are we not working towards that unit? Why are we satisfied uh, with division? I suspect that we are satisfied with divisions, one, because it's comfortable to live in my own little corner and build my own kingdom. I don't have to worry about people from who are, who are different from me. But the, the, the faith that Christ has called us into is the faith that is calling us to him, but is, calling all, is also calling us to one another. Uh, we should never be satisfied with disunity. It's not serving us uh, uh, in terms of witnessing for Christ. We need to be one in order to show that we are belonging to Christ and in order to be effective. In a world that is characterized by uh, separation according to class lines, according to color lines, uh, according to many different things, we need to be a group of people that transcends those separations, that transcends those dividing lines, and to be people that are one in Christ, celebrating our oneness. Thank you for listening to Mton Zini. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please like, follow, or subscribe to our social media channels on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, through the links on the description of this episode. Also show your appreciation by giving us a five-star ratings on the podcast platform that you are listening to us from. And share this episode with your friends and family. Thank you for listening, and God bless.